yes, for the very last time, live from Baker Street, London, I'm about to say hello and welcome to Pop-Up Submissions. Should we kick off with some good news? Yeah, I think we should. This email's just come in from Jeff Probst. He says, My book and I appeared on two pop-up submissions last year. The feedback I received from the blurb through the opening pages from yourself and the panel was useful for me, so much so, that I've come back for a second go of the same book, which my harshest critic there felt had improved. And in case you or anyone else there may be interested, my novel has now being published of course of course we're interested jeff um i tell you what we're going to do we're going to put you in our hall of fame with the buy button so everyone can actually get a copy and you're not really the very first person to have said that uh, to have success after making two submissions to pop-ups it does seem to be a winning formula and speaking of winners here's this week's guest panel he buys books to turn into television and film productions from an unidentified location. It's director Andrew, together with the awesome Ellie G. Yeah, and five fabulous narrators, one preternaturally hyperactive genius room. It's going to be a great show. And here we go, straight into submission number one, which is called The Executioner's Lament. It's epic fantasy, because that's the, the theme of today's show. And it's from Daniel. QR code there too, if you want to scan that and go off to Daniel's website or wherever else he wants to send you. And this is Daniel's blurb on his first mission with the eyes of the forest. Darren Cantley, a young recruit, stumbles upon a pair of severed legs that might belong to the prince of Honorius. This grisly find entangles him in an intricate plot designed to usurp the crown, forced to confront his faith, duty and allegiance. Darren must decide if his kingdom is worth dying for. Gods, long banished to myth, arise. Scheming nobles make subtle plays of subterfuge and the past sins of the empire are laid bare. Does that interest you? Interest me? Shall I tell you about Daniel? Um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, he says, and fell in love with stories as a teenager. Instead of attempting to become an author at that age, I did what most teenagers do in the mid-1990s and tried my hand at being a rock star. After a few unsuccessful bands imploded, I got a real job in the automotive industry. Ooh, touch of uh, Bruce Springsteen, I think, uh, where I've worked for over 20 years. I married the love of my life seven years ago, well done, and adopted two wonderful daughters two years after that. While juggling my responsibilities as a husband, father and manager, I squirreled away some time to write my first novel. A year of long nights and copious amounts of coffee. Later, I feel I'm ready to start the daunting task of querying. Well, good luck with that, but you don't need good luck with the reading because is from Johnny. The Executioner's Lament by Daniel Read by John Chapter 1 Darren The Eyes of the Forest Two legs stood upright in their boots, 
Well, that's what Darren thought he saw. Come, look at this, Darren Cantlay said as he dismounted his piebald charger. Luke had fallen during last week's storm, barring their path. He wished he was right, but he needed to get closer to be certain. Probably more huge bear tracks, snorted Darren's chief, Harren Ridgefoot. Can't be a blood drinker's bracer. Tenny found one of those two days ago, added Bart, the second of their company, and a constant irritation to Darren and his chief. Darren ignored their jests, but bristled at being called Tinny. Bad enough others of the eyes had taken to calling him Tin Horse. But Bart, that foul-smelling son of a tanner, had no right referring to him as Tinny. It's neither, he said. Ain't but a fallen tree, lad, said Harren as he approached. Will's going to have a right bugger of this mess when the woodcutters come through. Harren leapt off his horse, his travel-stained leather boots sloshing in the mud. He took two proud steps and placed a gloved hand on Darren's shoulder. Aye, it's big, but a lording like you shouldn't have no trouble jumping it. Darren stared back, exasperated. Harren never missed a chance to insult his noble birth, as though being born to a lord somehow deprived him of having any sense. But Darren knew he'd spotted something strange, and regardless of his companion's mockery, he hoped they might take him seriously if he proved his use. He had joined the eyes of the forest three months ago, two days after his 18th birthday. Ever since he had first heard the stories of Sir Matthew Dorn, the Iron Horse, he knew he wanted to be a rover, so he pleaded with his father, Lord Philip Cantlay of Red Run, to allow him to take the Pledge of the Eyes. Damn you, father, you were right. I'm no warrior. But it was in the ranks of the Eyes of the Forest that the Iron Horse, Sir Matthew Dorn, Darren's idol, had risen and ultimately became the head of the King's Blades. This was the only route Darren might take to achieve renown, like to the greatest kings of the history of Honorius. Further down, said Darren, past the bloody tree. Do you see it? Harren shaded his eyes from the sending sun. Bart joined them, but before he could utter one of his low-born jests, Harren silenced him. Keep quiet. I think Cantley may have found something. Until now, Darren had never heard Harren say a kind word about him. He smiled for the first time since leaving Elmfort. This was his staining. After all, his first roving, and he needed to impress his chief if he wished to gain any favour with their captain. Darren's cloak, doublet, breeches and boots were still clean, as his companions enjoyed reminding him. Light tan shining through, freshly stitched. No true rovers kept clean liveries. Harren's uniform, so stained by grass, mud and blood, seemed a tapestry of the forest itself. The underarms of his shirt, yellowed by years of sweat, had become damn near brown. Bart was almost there too, though scarcely five years Darren's senior and a full-fledged rover for less than a year. Unless his eyes deceived him, Darren thought he saw two legs standing upright in the middle of a glade. You see those, he asked, sticking up like a couple of stumps? Aye, aye. Aaron placed his hand on the hilt of his dagger and nodded. His hard, billful brown eyes, shrouded by bristly, dark grey eyebrows, narrowed. Best get your blade ready, boy. You was the one to find them. Time's right for you to earn your eyes. Uh, you mean uh, closer? asked Darren. No, blurted Bart. Run back to the oak tree and tell us what you see from there. Shut that fly trap of yours up, Bart, said Heron. Pay no mind to him, Cantley. He's a twat and he knows it. He glared at Bart, then turned to Darren. Now time you go and see if that ain't what we think it is. Thank you very much, Johnny. Uh, first class reading to get us started. Uh, let's cut straight to the genius room. Lex says, my question from the blurb, 
Are the legs still usable? Very good. Um, and he says, interesting blurb, but a tiny bit busy. I agree with that. All God's Rising, says a vagabond. All God's Rising bit interests me. Me too, actually. I could have done with more than that. Um, and Vagabond also says, seven legs would make it clearer in that opening. Glenn says, blurb didn't tell me much, to be honest. Hannah I'm already slightly lost. What about the standing legs? Yes, I know. I wanted to know more about that. Uh, James needs to narrow the blurb just a bit to focus on the main story. And then Pamela Joe, uh, yeah, how difficult it is to read dialect or patois. Absolutely. And Annie says, and this is, you know, remember, remember this, this, this goes through the same rate as, uh, well, it's, it's real time, basically, that's what I'm trying to say. Annie says, too much info dumping. Sorry. Um, LA, not sure we need this. Uh, this much backstory so early on and johnny on narrator says i felt this is okay and had potential but was a little at odds with the blurb james not feeling this la thomas feels slightly head hoppy and who else hannah i think give us the scene from darren's close point of view intriguers i'll be plenty of time to give us backstory yeah i think the backstory possibly is in the in the wrong place um and Pamela says, definitely a promising voice. Needs some good critiquing to hone it. Well, who should we go to for that? Shall we ask Ali? Um, yeah, no, I like the blurb too. I thought it was it was really interesting and it actually it did give out a fairly clear idea of where the story was going to be going. So I like that a lot. But when we started, one thing that, that kind of got me to begin with was quite so many new names and new ideas i mean mm. um there was about i don't know six names in about as many lines at the beginning um it was very difficult i had no empathy at all with the main character i didn't know who he was i felt mild sympathy if he was being slightly bullied by his his soldier compatriots but i mean you know i, I didn't really know anything about him and by the end of it could have described heron's tunic or heron himself rather a lot more than i could have done with yeah. the main character so I, I didn't feel invested in him emotionally at all Good. Um, and and it was it, I kind of felt throughout the piece it was almost like something was about to happen. You know, we had the legs and, and that well, was you've got, you know, got two pairs. You've got a pair of legs. <laughs> what more do you want? Oh, it's a good start. Yeah. yeah. But then yes, we went off on this sort of massive loop in, into all this backstory. We did. And, we did. And even just yes. just when there was something happening, we still ended up with loops. We ended up with um, a chat about him being called Tinny in the middle of it all. I know. And you think, okay, there's there's this massive action, and suddenly we're you know. He doesn't like. He doesn't like being called Tinny, but I don't care. He doesn't like being called Tinny, no, no, yeah. no. Just really. But, I mean, yeah. I thought you know, God, um, you know, Paris. I think we had that twice. I think we had that right at the again. It was, it was like it was a new. So, um, so I think you know, a, a bit of really decent editing and getting rid of all the extra fluff, yeah. writing all of that in about half of it. Even so, <laughs> I thought it was quite atmospheric. Did you think it was atmospheric? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. And I think yeah. if you if you, if this is your bag, if you like this kind of genre of fiction, I think you'd probably get into it quite quickly. Is this your bag, Andrew? Uh, no, it isn't. But okay. um, I liked the detail very much, uh -huh. uh, and I like the tinny thing. And bearing in mind that, you know, this is just our toe into the story. Um, I felt I got to know the world of the characters a bit more. And what I really liked is the down-in-the-dirt gruntness of it. They weren't superheroes. So I actually knew that I was experiencing a story from the bottom up. And that was, that was interesting for me. I found the blurb really confusing. Uh, a young recruit to what? Um, and I felt I was too distant from Darren at that point. I didn't yeah. really 
didn't hook me into wanting to know any more about him. Yeah, I know me saying that too. The the image of the two legs, uh, you go, okay, that's just a sort of a visual. It's a sight gag, <laughs> um, uh, but that's not enough to read on the rest of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and actually, the um, the section that we with the, the story that we read um, actually was, and you realise actually the uh, discovery of the legs is the start of something else. Whereas in the blurb, it, it didn't come over like that. And I think the the strength of the blurb has to be um, what's the dilemma that the story is going to solve for me? Right. Yes. I, yes. I can see I haven't voted. So let me let me vote. All right, uh, there you um, vote. I will I will read the latest and greatest I, I like from the detail. genius room. Uh, yeah, bang! I I just can't tell really. Okay, um, fair enough. I fair enough. Uh, mean mean while you, while you're, you're attempting to vote, and I can give you some assistance at the moment because you're first time. Um, I will uh, tell you what Martin thought. Martin thought this had definite promise. It could, he says, have legs. Oh no! <laughs> That's terrible. It is. It's it's terrible. Yeah, no, I, 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 I certainly can't. No, no, terrible, terrible no, no, pun. Well, I know you, you, you probably cheer. Let's cheer him for that. Well exactly. done, Martin. Okay, here you go, Martin. You got a wow. You got an official yeah. wow from Andrew. Let's just see if Andrew's votes come in. And it has. Fantastic. You voted incredibly well. Let's look at the overall numbers now. You've got Daniel. Um, that, yeah. Then I want to come back and have have a word with Andrew actually about. Uh, Epic fantasy in television, actually, because it seems to be overrunning television at the moment. Let's look at the numbers. You've got a very solid 6 to 6 there. It could go up or down a little bit as more and more genii vote. But uh, 6 to 6, a creditable beginning. If you remember from last week, uh, we had a, a fantastic submission from David, David Neuner. Um, um, title I wasn't wild about. Uh, Watering the Seeds of Guilt, it was called. Everything else, I think everyone was really wild about. It was a really good submission, and it scored 77 by way of comparison. So if you want to be in a chance, in the chance to win this month, you've got to beat 77. I want to ask Andrew. I mean, epic fantasy seems to have been overrunning television in recent years. You've got Game of Thrones, you've got Lord of the Rings, you've got House of the Dragon. Uh, and then I just uh, Googled, and I've come up with uh, dozens more. The Sandman, the Winx saga, I've never heard of that, apparently it's big. I didn't like the Sandman. I just uh, Didn't you? The Mandalorian's kind of like that. Absolutely love it. But the thing about the, all of those is they're, pre, they're well-established pre-existing properties. Franchises, so yeah. So look at what... Um, uh, Disney have done with the Lord of the Rings. They paid huge amount of money oh, for it. Yeah. A massive investment, and um, and it's not going particularly well for them at the moment. Oh, um, so <laughs> well, is that uh, is that the end of an era? Is that the end of the epic fantasy no, era? I don't as think far so as television is concerned, appetite for it. I think it's execution dependent because uh, you're appealing to experts, experts that know everything and have a, an expectation. Yeah. I don't know. It's not uh, a world that I particularly uh, follow, but it could be quite a narrowly defined world. And where you see things reoccurring is because that is the boundary of the expectation of the audience. Hmm. These things cost huge amounts of money. I was just going to ask, how expensive is it relative to other forms of television? Absolutely no idea. Absolutely no idea. I mean, hundreds of millions. Yeah. yeah. So it is, it's example, at the top end. It's the top oh, end. Oh, yeah, yeah. Room. I mean, yeah. right up yeah. there. But, yeah. but, but because it's a, so for an example um and it's not uh well it is a fiction fantasy the crown 
the crown the budget for the crown is 10 million pounds good grief about a month ago 10 million pounds would be a lot more than it is today but that's a political trend way yes um our episode that's extraordinary and, a, and an episode is between 56 58 60 minutes yeah. ish um yeah. and if you're making decisions on that level and you've got a series so let's go yes. back to uh game of thrones um they're going to be rigorous about not taking risks yeah or knowing what risk they're going to take which with that amount of cash yeah which meditate uh, sort of pre, um, pre presupposes towards rather dull television actually for not taking risks i want to uh, ask Ali, i disagree with you about that it, it presupposes you? you perhaps more narrowly defined than you would like i didn't like sandman i didn't like the execution of it but people that love sandman absolutely loved it absolutely okay. Okay, so you mentioned you mentioned the crown there. You mentioned Game of Thrones. Ali, uh, are you a crown a person or a Game of Thrones person? Don't watch either. Haven't watched either. Really, really. I Andrew, your personal tastes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> personal tastes. Andrew. Uh, political. There's on. Um, uh, I think it's Disney. There's the old man, um, and I'm absolutely loving that at the moment. Okay. Okay. Good recommendation. It's the streaming services. You know what? The streaming services have got it. But it's like going, oh my god! You know, that's another ten pounds a month. Yes. Uh, unless I binge, yes. you know, get the free monthly, then dump it, and yes. then if I want to do something again, get a new uh, IP address and a new email, and have another. Yeah. So awesome. are we? What stage are we at then in sort of streaming wars? Because it's just what you say. It's another ten pounds a month, and when Netflix have reduced their basic level now, haven't they? Too is it five dollars ninety nine with lots and lots uh, of that's ads? That's the advertiser. Yeah. Uh, supporting yeah. Like but is are we going to expect a fallout? Are, are the, this time next uh, yeah, year are going to be so, fewer but, uh, netflix are uh, running into, into problems because there comes to a point doesn't there where all the people who are interested in a subscription have got it so the way that people are marking how well they're doing is a uh, growth yes but once you've reached everybody there can't be any growth yes then people panic Yes, and so, the irresistible, um, irresistible Lex and the junior student says, I'd suggest combining Game of Thrones and The Crown. Uh, that would be very nice and economical, of course. But we had that already. It was called World War One. I. I wasn't a fan. Uh, fantastic, uh, uh, fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. I hope you're pleased with that and all the feedback you've got there. Um, it's very clearly genre fiction, isn't it? And uh, the only thing I would say, actually, and I should have said this uh, a few moments ago, is add some uh, comparators. It's very useful uh, when agents or publishers are looking to, well, it's basically seeing if they can make any money out of it, actually. Add some comparators. That'll be incredibly useful for your pitch. Here we are, submission number two. This is from Colin. It's specfic. It's disgrace. We've got a E. e. Cummings moment there. Disgrace, city, colon. I don't know how I feel about colons and titles. Uh, the Chameleon. Like, that kind of suggests, doesn't it? This is maybe book one of 27 volume series or something. Nice short blurb. Here it is. As a young woman takes steps to uncover the mystery of her past, she becomes entwined in a dangerous corporate plot that's about to bring the world to its knees. And she's only, and she's the only one who can stop it. All right. Very simple setup. Shall I tell everybody about you? Shall I? 
Yeah, play me not to? No? Okay, I'm going to. Colin Colbreth, that's our author, Juju, uh, is a 37-year-old American expat living and working in England as a school teacher. And very welcome too. Um, if you ask him, he'll tell you he loves teaching. But if you buy him enough drinks, <laughs> he might whisper that writing is his true passion. Six of his nonfiction articles were published by an online magazine called The Venus Project magazine. And he has self-published a nonfiction book on Amazon called The Lens of Truth. Another colon. You like your colons, don't you? <laughs> Greed, the media and we. You can still find them online, but he was young then. Excuse me, 37? That's young, especially in writing terms. Um, and these views may or may not accurately reflect his old man views. How are you insulting here? Dear, we're getting on so well. Um, he's a cat lover. Oh, yeah, that's all right. Rehabilitating yourself, I see. He's a cat lover. And if you try and show off your cute baby, he will take this as a challenge and will break out superior cat pictures. Okay, I think we've got the, uh, the measure of the man. Um, all I can say is we've got a fabulous reading coming up for you from Jeff. Disgrace City, The Chameleon by Colin, read by Jeff. Chapter One. Ali blew a heated breath into her hands, a temporary relief from the bitter cold. She was not about to let a little bad weather foil her plans. It had taken months to prepare for this night, and that was not even counting the hours feeling around on the dark web, all the weeks of surveillance, long nights, and dead ends. To track him down, it took dedication and patience, but she finally found him, Mr. Smith, the bastard who murdered her mother and sister, and she was going to make him pay. As the waning light of the sun faded behind the horizon, Darkness crept in like a silent predator. It descended from the black, plushy sky above and encroached the unfeeling coves of the buildings. Delicate snowflakes danced in the breeze, casting eerie shadows in the ominous amber glow of Grey City's street lamps. Ali busily hot-wired a long cable to a cracked open fuse box on the rooftop. When she finished soldering the power cables, she plugged it into the computer she built just for this occasion. While the device booted up, she pulled a grenade from the black duffel bag. Like MacGyver, she'd synthesized the aerosol inside from various anesthesia drugs herself. The local vet probably wouldn't miss them. She only hoped she had gotten the doses right or there would be trouble. She placed the gas grenade into the pocket on her fanny pack, which was slung over her shoulder. Next, she pulled a hover drone from the bag and tossed it into the air. The silent rotary fans caught and floated in place, waiting for her command. As she pressed the return key and stood still, the drone whirled around her silhouette. It painted her body with a thin beam of neon light and scanned every crevice of her form, bending around her muscles and curves. As it near completion, she heard it. Tires rolling over loose pebbles on the asphalt below. They were here. Moving steadily, she made her way towards the edge of the roof and peered over the side. The drone followed her, tracking and adjusting to her movements as it began making its final pass over her body. The black sedan rolled to a stop and four darkly clad figures stepped out. They each pulled barraclobes over their faces, clicked on their flashlights and made their way around the car towards the dilapidated doorway of a long, 
forgotten theatre. She cursed. She needed more time. Suddenly, one of the men stopped in his tracks as a snowball pelted him in the chest. He moaned and flicked the snuff his face with his hand. Hey! The man barked, staring at the abbess across the street. You think that's funny, you little punk? Ali followed his gaze. Some kids were lurking in the shadow, snickering. Yeah, I could stun it for you. The man yelled, removing a gun from its holster. Ali's eyes narrowed as he fired off four rounds in their direction, sending the group scrambling into the alley and out of sight. He was either a lousy shot or he had missed on purpose. Just then, the drone chirped and returned to its hovering beside her. Snatching it from the air, she clicked it into the dock in her lower back and sighed. Breathing out of breath, she didn't know how she'd held. Hey! Another man yelled, walking over and getting into the big man's face. He grabbed his collar and shoved him back a step. What the hell's the matter with you? You want to tell every cop in the old town where we are? He hit me with a snowball! The big man protested. Oh, you gonna be okay? The man asked. The big man put the gun back in its holster and bowed his head. As the leader turned away and headed towards the stone steps, a smaller, weedier man shook his head at him in exaggerated disapproval, then followed the others into the building. Ali shook her head, willing herself to focus, and stepped through a busted vent on the roof. Inside, she crouched in the shadows, watching the men from above through the semi-collapsed roof. Thank you very much, Jeff. Another great reading. Good reading. Always good readings, but particularly so today, I think. Um, let's see what the genii are up to. Always right and never wrong, remember, is the wisdom of crowds, guys. You know, you, you can disagree, but they're still right, actually. Um, Vagabond says, too brief and cliched a blurb for me. Sorry. Want something a bit more? And James says, "Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think there's a general approval of the the you know the conciseness of the blurb, possibly." Uh, James says, "Blurb doesn't give me enough about the main character." Matt, not a fan of small d, big G. I yeah, that's slightly disturbing. We also blurb is a bit generic. Pamela Jo says, "Title needs to be shorter, snappier." Blurb needs a bit more detail. Um, small d's throwing L.A. Thomas. Barbara agrees. Blurb, she says, is a bit meaningless, and that's the problem when you condense, condense, condense. Ultimately, just becomes completely generic. Um, Glenn says, short blurb needs to give us more. Um, Johnny's on the title, thinks it's too fiddly and off-putting. Barbara, simply Chameleon City might work. They're rewriting your title for you now. Um, and Vagabond says, feels a bit overwritten. I've read this before, says L.A. Thomas. I wonder where... Um, and Matt says, is there anyone under 35 who's heard of MacGyver? Um, and he says, yeah, picking up pace now, about halfway through. Um, but it's not grabbing uh, Vagabond. Pamela Joe, don't get the purpose of this dialogue. I also feel, says Vagabond, I may have read, seen this many times before. Not getting something new. It, it has got a slightly generic feeling to it. Martin says, good external detail, need to worry for Ali more, not our Ali, that Ali. Let's make that clear. Uh, where's the emotion? Not sure I care about the main character, says James. Blurb had had me half intrigued, says Lex, half incredulous. How does one person's mysterious past possibly threaten a whole world? And I think the lack of emotion, says Matt, is intentional, but maybe not a great decision. What did you think, Andrew? Uh, I absolutely agree about the generic part of it. Um, uh, too many cliches, uh, dangerous corporate plot I'm interested in. 
but didn't give me any other clue. Yeah. Um, the world to its knees. Well, of course it would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, she's the only one who can stop it. Well, she's the heroine. Of course she's the only one in this story. Yeah. Um, I want to know what it's about, not how it's about, really. Well, that's very um, straightforward. Yes, absolutely. I can't well, disagree with that. Do you want me to move on to the, uh, the extract? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, the, uh, in, I like the strong female lead. I liked her practicality. I felt that was for the action that was uh, confident and snappy. There was too much detail to read. And the thing about the aerosol, and there's a little bit of uh, that she had prepared something, something, something herself. We don't need herself at the end that she prepared. Yeah. So again, it got a little, there was too much detail to uh, match the snappiness of the dialogue to get into it. And I felt it was delaying. What was going to be interesting me was, okay, I know here's a practical woman. She's done all these things. Um, but there were too many words for me to get through to, to actually do that. The uh, four people arriving in the car in dark clothing. I liked, uh, I, what I thought was she needed something to delay them. Then was it a horrible coincidence that a boy crossed the other side of the street through a snowball? Coincidence is terrible. Coincidence. Pixar's rules of uh, script writing say coincidence can get you into trouble but can never get you out of it. Oh. And the thing is, well, that's got her out of trouble, hasn't it? She was looking for something. So that's, yeah. that, unless something else happened in the next chapter, I don't know. I uh, was investing in it until the gangsters became comedy. Yeah. And then I thought, oh dear, right, I don't have faith anymore. The comedy yeah. gangsters leached the tension that was there. Yes, as it will do. Thank you. Very, very good, Andrew. Yes, you haven't done this before, have you? But yeah, it's no, very, no, very, no, very yeah, just, uh, Well, actually, I'm taking what is in the genius room and I'm just reworking it. Into my <laughs> Always the same strategy. I, they yes. do all the work. I don't have to you, do anything. You've been rumbled, uh, yes. <laughs> Ellie. Um, yeah, no, I agree about the blurb. It was really quite generic. I mean, you know, yes, we had reasonable stakes, but... Yeah, it, it just was too generic. It didn't grip me. And uh, and equally the title, I, I don't, I'm not um, taken away by that. A couple of bits I really liked, you know, there was a bit about, she was fiffling around with her computer and it sort of, she plugged it in the back or she tapped on the keyboard or whatever, and then yeah. pulled out a grenade. You know, and I thought, yeah. ooh, that's nice. Um, and there were some touches of detail, which I think, when he was talking about her spending hours in the dark web, as soon as anybody spent any time in the dark web, you, you got an insight into the character, you got to, you know, feel the stakes are high somehow. So something like that as a detail. But I entirely agree with Andrew, you know, knowing what was in the homemade bomb or grenade or whatever, or, you know, how it had been made, you know, it was actually just sort of too much random information. Okay. Um, it really was stuffed with cliches. They started counting at the beginning and it just it was sort of one after the other after the other. Uh -huh. And so, you know, a lot of the concepts were perfectly reasonable, but just, uh -huh. you know, not phrased as well as they could have been. Uh -huh. um, so it was also quite incongruous that, you know, at the beginning we were talking about the whole thing was so carefully planned. And then suddenly, you know, these guys arrived and she needs more time. And you think, why? You know, if it was so terribly carefully planned, surely she knew, you know, that she she would need, they Gosh. would be arriving at a particular time or whatever. Yes. Um, wow. Well, this also, is the, you know, the analytical mind guy. of Ali I work with, of course, yeah. <laughs> wow. 
this big tough guy even moaning when he struck the, the snowball. You think, you know, he's not much yeah. of a henchman if he gets hit by a snowball. Well, that was a the kid. comedy element, Some wasn't it? You know? yeah, yeah, that was well, the comedy you know, element, it, Andrew. It just needs hmm. so well, a really um, good prune again. Moaning could just be complaining rather than moaning in pain. Oh, I see. No, I was, um, I was just... But, uh, no, but, but the fact that we're having to... You know, moaning, because uh, that, uh, that uh, leached the tension that mo- at that point. So yeah. you could go, yeah. oh, God, that's where your head would have been. I thought back to it and thought, oh, he's just moaning because he's been hit by a snowball. But the fact we're having to analyse it like that shows that it, uh, the direction that the reader is being pointed in has become di- dilute, really. Yes, yes. A single cliché, says Matt, can serve a good purpose, but more is less. Uh, the weasels and Roger Rabbit, says James. I think that's apropos of your comment, Andrew. I'm not that yeah. familiar with the weasels, but I guess they are fairly gratuitous. Does well, that mean anything to you? Of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Very good. There we go. Very good. Um, hopefully, you find that uh, useful, Colin. Let me just ask um, Andrew about what, I, what, what what tickles your fancy when uh, you and like-minded folk uh, decide to, to acquire something, get interested in something—a book, a manuscript, maybe um, take it for to, to television or film. Well, is there anything in particular that makes your, yeah, your yeah, ears that, prick that, up? There are two answers to that. There's yeah? the one that we don't say out loud, but I'm going to hear because I know you're not going to tell anybody, and it's just us. Just our little secret. Um, yeah. Can we persuade somebody to give us the money to make it? That's the truth of that. The other thing is, and what's interesting about uh, Disgrace City, and I agree about the title, Dirty City might be more interesting, but I haven't read it, so I don't, I don't know. Just from that sample is really difficult, is here you've got a strong female lead. Mm-hmm. The blurb appeared to promise that she that this wasn't going to be her normal role so how had she got if i'm and i might be misinterpreting it how had she gone from being an office worker to um somebody who is jury rigging uh, assassination things um i didn't particularly like the computer she had built herself for this purpose uh because i i, I don't know why you need to do that uh, well, as, a, as a bit of a computer builder myself, I, I actually I warmed to the character at that point, but I don't think that was the yeah. intention. Okay. So, uh, so why would you need that to get an aerosol can full of anaesthetic that you'd carefully, I don't know. I, missed, I was reading ahead uh, on the text, yeah. Yeah. and I thought that it was going to, that she'd harvested from other things. Yeah. Uh, that actually she'd gone to get you know, Prozac, she'd aerosoled it, uh, she'd gone to get the, you know, her doctor over six months <laughs> had given her the tools to combine these things to weaponize. Uh, we're going into Breaking Bad territory, aren't we? Yeah. Um, okay, so th- but, that intrigued that, you. That's interesting. So a strong female character doing something that she never trained for, wasn't made to, but has to do. Yes. Um, uh, that is interesting. Yes. Um, but it would depend on the world in which it took place. And more than that, the arc of the story. When we pitch, it's often called the elevator pitch. I, mm. you, okay, you get that. Man, um, do, but yeah. you go, okay, what is the heart of this story? What is the idea, the concept, without which um, this uh, story wouldn't work? Um, I can't get it just from, from that sample. But And it's not what the blurb was telling us. You know, okay. She talks to it. Okay, I, so okay, so you you raising issues and questions, but I want to ask both of you: uh, Would you turn the page? Are you going to read on? I would for a bit. 
Yeah, I think I'd be. I might give it a, a short while longer, but it would have to have to getting a bit snappier. Okay, yeah. fair I'd enough. That's great. A bit more. Mm. And, great. And engage me with the story rather than just the process. Very did. good. And we got votes from uh, Andrew. And just checking, we got votes from Ali. Absolutely. And we got an overall figure for you, Colin, of fifty-nine, which is a good starter. 59 for you your next submission i'm sure we'll build on that let's go on shall we to submission number three here we go it's called time immemorial and it's science fiction which kind of kind of comes under our canopy today of uh, specfic and fantasy and it's from michael and this is michael's blurb Time Immemorial is a sci-fi psychological thriller about a struggling college professor's quest to fund an invention that can record, store, and implant memories. Oh my God, it's Elon Musk. Such an ambitious undertaking requires the help of a militant angel investor. Wow, I wonder if that's literal. I'd love that, actually, if it was. Um, an, an, An angel investor really is an angel. Like divine speculation. That'd be cool. Uh, the pioneering principle of an alternative learning academy <clears throat> and an all too familiar true love. There's one big problem. He's continuously confronted by a past that can't possibly be his own. He can't trust anyone, not even himself. About Michael, having worked in neuroscience and psychological research for over 10 years, both in academia and in the private sector, I can tell you from experience that the truth is stranger than fiction. Radioactive monkeys picking their own cage locks and roaming the empty research facility to be found by a lone technician on a Saturday is not only the stuff of nightmares, it has happened to me. Jeez, vivisection. I self-published one book on Amazon called The S-Curve about genetically modified bacteria that skyrocketed human testosterone and turned the townspeople into animals driven only by basic instinct. Wow. (laughs) That's something. Um, I'm a combat veteran. I hold a BS in neuroscience from the University of Michigan and an MBA from Western Michigan University. Uh, All that's quite amazing, but not nearly as amazing as this reading is going to be from Bev. Time Immemorial by Michael Bone, read by Bev. I wasn't really sure of anything anymore since I started shooting myself in the head with these pins. Shiny metal false memories that could make you learn anything you want instantaneously. But the memories now blend seamlessly with reality. Am I in a therapy session with a red-haired goddess guiding me through mindfulness meditation? Am I on an island with said goddess chasing her naked body through the waves? Or am I being chased by 7.62 millimetre bits of metal down some rural highway in Iraq? Am I fighting a world champion fighter? Am I breaking ground on the thin metal educational turning point of mankind? Or is my brain dead body being rolled up in a throw rug? The memory of a loud crack suddenly floods my reality, overlaid with a high-pressure hiss, much like a pneumatic roofing nail gun. 
The idea was to drive the tiny metal spike through my skull, into my brain, and back out. But something went wrong. I wasn't dead, but they didn't know that. I didn't know it either. Sterling, a male voice said, can you recite the poem for me? I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't speak. Sterling, the voice shouted. The voice. It was familiar. No man is an island, he said, as if trying to coax the words out of me. Entire of itself, he kept on. Some rustling, then a few heavy footsteps. Hey, he said, before he touched his index and middle finger to various spots around my carotid artery. Fuck, he said, as he unscrewed the vise that had been holding my head upright. Once it was loose, my head fell forward like a limp noodle. Some of my greasy hair stuck to the vise, plucking some strands out by the root as I departed. The man unstrapped my arms and legs, angrily pulling me forward by the back collar of my shirt. I fell down on a rug in front of me, burning my cheek as the man dragged me forward, then began rolling me up in it. The last thing I remember was him shouting, Turn that shit off! Okay, stop thinking. This is just that erratic monkey mind that she talked about. Focus on real. Mindfulness. Focus. What is happening right now? The sound of crashing waves. The endless blue splitting at the horizon into above and below. Hmm, what else? the hot dry sand on the bottom of my feet as I pace. It's almost too hot, like I'm going to burn, but it's also too good to leave. It's the kind of sand that doesn't stick because it's so dry, like it was dumped out of an hourglass. I bury my foot and lift up a clump of it to have a line of sand fall through my toes. The wind blows the line away in a wisp and it disappears. An empty champagne flute sits next to me, half buried. The sun sits heavy and hot on my shoulders. My skin is warm and brown. My long, wavy black hair is nearly dry now, blowing past my pitch-black retina. Jagged edges define my facial features. The silhouette of my profile in the sand could be mistaken for a soft hexagon. My body, however is a bit more round, like two symmetrical rows of chiselled scoops of ice cream that have been left out in the sun too long. I have a lot of body hair and I'm not as tall as I could be, but I'm okay with it. I have so much more to offer than height. I'm sterling hope, for Christ's sake. A goddess with long red hair is splashing through the waves in front of me, a lucky green two-piece bathing suit adorns her perfect proportions. A toned golden body, sprinkled head to toe with freckles, wades through the vast ocean. She catches me watching her and smiles back at me. Her dimples choke me up, making me think the exercise is not so difficult after all. How did this happen? Seems like only a minute ago this woman was my psychiatrist making me do a mindfulness exercise to help curb the intrusive thoughts I've been having. Oh, right.
Thank you, Beverly. Brilliant reading. Always love Beverly's readings. Uh, I'm going to uh, try and summarise. Impossible task, of course, with the genius dreams. After I have to, I have to backtrack a moment um, to uh, previous uh, slight discussion about cliches, actually, because Johnny just says a cliche is like a red rag to a bull for me. <laughs> That's a quote from Reginald Perrin. I love it. You'll appreciate it if you think about it. Uh, and then, as they do, as they do, Andrew is a new guest. He's, uh, he's essentially a pop-up virgin. And our genius room is not slow to review our guests. They pass, they can pass comment, they criticise, but they're honest. And I'm pleased to say, Andrew, it looks like you've passed the the test here. Um, Matt says, absolutely brilliant, Andrew. Uh, in this quoting of this oh, this issue here, might be the author cool. isn't quite sure what the heart of the story is yet. And Hannah echoes that and says, what's the heart of the story without which the story wouldn't work? Great question to remember when plotting. So. You've been accepted, I think. Isn't that nice? Um, and he says, getting Black Mirror vibes from this. I do a bit. The second half of the blurb doesn't work for me. What's the main character's name, says LA? And that's a pretty basic question, really. Quite like the blurb, too, says Vagabond. Jan says, love the idea and threat of brain-computer interface interaction. I mean, it's just with us, isn't it? Really, literally, is Elon Musk territory. Um, cut the opening of the blurb, says Matt. Then rework the next 20 and i don't know who, but someone said exactly the same thing about in fact they counted they were in your blurb you know if you if you're watching the recording of this michael just just freeze it and just look at everything they've been saying it's all brilliant advice actually uh, someone said lose the first eight words and i just counted them and it works a lot better with the the first eight words gone ali thomas the blurb's a bit too confusing for me and he says actually a past that not his not his own is interesting Bring that to the forefront. Does he have someone else's memories? Blade Runner 2048. Yes, please. Streamline uh, blurb a little, says James Glenn. Intriguing blurb. Matt says, I love the idea of the opening, but it seems a bit distancing. Annie says, so far reminds me of Emma Stone's Maniac show. What voice is cold, says Annie too. But I think it works. Second paragraph would be a better place to start. It's the point where his life changes, says Hannah. <gasps> so many more great comments. Limp Noodle is a vivid simile, says Martin. A little ethereal, hard to nail down, says Johnny Dreamy. I, I felt like too. I, I thought it's too impressionistic for me to begin with, but maybe the uh, our, our panel would disagree with me. We'll find out. Great reading, Bev, says Annie. Um, like the unpredictability of this, says Vagabond. And Lex says, plot twist. This pop-up says a memory you've had in plot. I'll see myself out. What do you think, Andrew? So, um, I've always liked Joe 90. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah. Yes, um, I know I'm what you're talking about. Sort of, just uh, a, kind of just a reprimand, uh, people. Um, look, if you take it as a sort of false memory thing, as a kind of subgenre in itself, hmm. it's what you do with it, not the fact that it is. Yeah. Um, um, confronted by his own past by a past confronted people that's a kind of potato stamp word that they do have to do this something it doesn't really get to what it is i don't think he's confronted by a past that isn't his own hmm. um because what it appears to promise is how do you know what's real peter yeah. how do you know what's real what can i answer real? that I can't answer you that. Can't. No, no. You're, it's, it's not actually, a figment. I, I think. Could turn the other way, <laughs> and there's another reality that seems just. You mentioned Elon Musk, the implanting yeah. of false memories. You go, that's really interesting. I'm yeah. really. How do you know what's real? 
Yeah. Suppose when you're asleep and what you're and what, what you're dreaming. Supposing that's reality and this isn't. Supposing yeah. you go to sleep and actually this just seems that's really interesting for me. The bit that mm. I missed uh, uh, that isn't in there, but maybe that's just the structuring. Is he doing this deliberately? Because actually, you know, there's that needle thing mm. and the thing. So actually, I don't know what point we've come into his story mm. um, or whether we're going to discover that later. But if we go that he's been doing it as an experiment, but actually he has no idea. Um, and um, no, it isn't Thunderbirds-ish. So Joe Knighty was a child. <laughs> he sits inside the big rat. No, don't something. argue with the, the one be and, basic rule. Is don't argue with the genius. Father, they will win. Um, gives him skills to allow him to go out on missions. So let's say uh, I had a mission to go, but I needed to fire a fighter jet. I sit inside this machine for a few minutes. Then I'd have all the skills of the world's best expert pilot. There let's say go. I need to be yeah. a, 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 a card sharp. I sit down and I get all of those because that's what yeah. Joe Knighty um, made by the people that made Thunderbirds. So, um, in the description uh, of the author, you t he talks about how truth is strange in the fiction, radioactive escape monkeys. Um, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Hmm. Truth is stranger than fiction. And here we've got somebody with skills, with life experience, exactly. that can put us in that world. Yeah. yeah. So, from this extract, I couldn't quite get that. But actually, I smell something really interesting here. I think there's something uh, interesting there, too. In reality, how do you know what's yeah. real? Um, it feels a bit seen before at the moment. Mm. What is his dilemma? Just working out, oh, this is real, that isn't, isn't interesting at all. But suppose the realities start to play against each other. Supposing he wants out. Well, I don't know. That sounds a bit sort of Matt Damon-esque, doesn't it? In What's that? Uh, Treadstone... Or the genius room or no one. Yeah, born identity. Well, it worked quite born well. Identity. It worked quite yeah, well for Matt. Yeah, uh, and uh, and so those memories come back. So within a genre, you go, okay, yeah, you're playing within that by somebody that has uh, expert knowledge and skills. Fantastic. And we, uh, Pamela Jo has just created a neologism uh, based on what you said, uh, Andrew, made by the people, she's quoting, made by the people who did Thunderbirds, therefore Thunderbirds-ish. It'll be in the right. OED that, very that, soon. Uh, I'm never coming back. No, no, no oh dear. <laughs> well, we should end the show before you say that, for heaven's sake. Uh, otherwise, you'll screw up our voting system completely. What do you think, Ali? <laughs> Um, I, I found I was simply trying too hard to kind of stick with this story. You know, it, it was confusing. There was all sorts of bits coming in from the left. Um, I mean, like at the beginning, there was all these questions, you know, more or less, am I a bird? Is it is this real? You know, is my left my right? I can't remember the whole questions. But, you know, it just seemed that there was an awful lot of questions. And I began to feel impatient and want them to get on with the story. And, mm. and a, lot, a lot of things simply weren't clear. You know, these, these metal pins going into his head. Was he doing it himself? And it was an experiment gone wrong. You know, scientists do this, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, or was it actually some external, you know, party that had done this to him? Really not clear. Um, but if it's not clear, does that, why, does that irritate you or does it just yes. in, intrigue you? <laughs> do you want to read on to find out? 
Uh, no, it doesn't. It, it irritates me. I, I would actually quite like to know whether this guy is, is sort of some maverick weird scientist, you know, actually literally doing this, or whether he's some, you know, scientific hero and allowing people to do strange things to his head. Yeah. You know, it, it's two different characters we're talking. And then we moved on to this really weird perspective where he almost seemed to be having an out-of-body experience. He was either unconscious or semi-conscious or really jolly not quite there. Um, and yet he seemed to know all of this stuff in extreme detail, even though it's, you know, and it was almost like it was an out-of-body sort of type experience which just seemed again it just seemed a bit strange yeah um, so I, and i think at the end of it i would just have much preferred to have a handle on his reality than the dream reality you know again we knew an awful lot yeah, about the goddess and the right. waves and the bathing suit and the, you know but we knew really very little about strictly where he was i think we assumed he was in a hospital or research center but really we had very little as somebody said we didn't even know his name you know mm. and i certainly wasn't i wasn't in with him i wasn't well it's an unreliable so. uh, narrator but unfortunately it's so if you start like that making it really clear the narrator is is absolutely unreliable right from the beginning then we just kind of shrug and say oh, i don't know i'm not sure i can yeah. really yeah. Um, yeah. We, that's we, okay if the dilemma is presented yeah. so if it's not yeah. reliable, but the dilemma yeah. he's facing yeah. is really clear then yeah. we do have some um, nervous tension investment in that yes yes exactly uh you were you are uh, presumably andrew you were not you were equally uninvested in fact divested as as much as ali were you no, not at all. I'm, I'm much more... What was the adjective you used, Ali, uh, about not liking it? <laughs> oh, I can't remember. <laughs> okay, it's well, anyway, anyway my, my one would be the opposite of that, then. Um, uh, uh, and the other thing is, don't forget that this is just the first chapter, isn't it? Or, or so. Yes. Actually, in, in structuring, you don't put your goods up front. You put your dilemma or the setting for the dilemma. Then you d get the d dilemma uh, uh, up. Um, but um, uh, so no, no, I'm I'm not that. Um, I'm more up on it than down on it. It's okay. got a way okay. to go. It's, yeah. Um, and I think that that Ali's absolutely right in you know who's putting the pins in and things. You need to know the detail of that because we're an external observer and you can't lie and cheat to us. Yes, all right, we can certainly try. I, for what it's worth, I found I found it too confusing to begin with and too impressionistic, and that's been echoed by uh, Gina Shrim as well as Ali and I think Andrew as well. So um, I think um, if we're to be positive, Michael, um, I felt, um, I also felt, I don't, I don't know when I've said this yet, but I, I thought it was overwritten. Um, and this is not, you know, this is not lit fic. Um, it's typical of the sort of submissions we sometimes see that call themselves lit fic, and I'm pleased you didn't do that. You're just calling it science fiction, which means you're solidly in the commercial world. You're trying to intrigue people, you're trying to sell lots of copies and so on. That's great. That's the world that I certainly operate in. And, you know, I, I therefore, I just, I need the language to communicate more, not necessarily to be, you know, literature of the capital L and finally formed and so on. You know, words that are just in sentences that are pretty to look at on their own right. I need them to work as a communication medium um, a little bit more. Um, so I, th I think that was overwritten. I need the story to come through. I'll tell you another practical possibility. I don't know how Ali and Andrew feel about this. But I, I think it's if we are dealing with you know what's real, what's not real, with memory, uh, how real is, you know are our recollections and so on. I think it's quite important we do get. This is just my view. You may feel free to disagree. We we do get a sort of solid anchor point that we you know we can then go out from. You know we know that's real, but is that real? That is real, but maybe that is, or maybe it's not. We don't know. What do you think? 
I think you're right. I think so. uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm, uh, I'd encourage him to uh, press on with it, actually, because okay. I think there is something really interesting there. And also, um, his background means that he's the person to write this story. Um, I like the idea of not quite knowing what's real, but I'd have to know that through him. Yes. I think. Yeah, I understand that. Let's look at the numbers. And, and, and I think the, the, that chapter did suggest that he wasn't sure what was real. So that's a little bit of clarity yes. in that would be good. Then how did he come into this world? Is he doing it to himself? Is it being done to him? I'm not interested in the Treadstone thing because that's Jason Bourne. Um, and let's not forget, what was that movie uh, where the where they were medical students and uh, they... Flatline. line. Mm-hmm. So actually, they did it deliberately. The the book or the I don't know if it was a book. I read the script and then didn't like the, the film that was made of it. Um, is I wonder what it's like on the other side. Yeah. And as they've got access to all this medicine and they can the medical skills to resuscitate people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we'll all find out quite soon, I assume, if Liz Truss, Liz Truss continues as prime minister. Uh-huh. Um, let's no, no, there, look- there won't be any power to resuscitate us. <laughs> resuscitators that sounds like, i don't know what oh, that's a very funny word actually resuscitators good grief what's your profession resuscitators um let's look at the uh, comparative numbers so far the scorecard there's just two more to go oh very first very first submission of the day from daniel is our winner so far with two more submissions to go let's look at our next submission number four shadows and seers do you like that title Shadows and Seers. Historical fantasy from ID. ID Roberts, QR code there too. Fantastic. Another short blurb. I wonder if they'll like it again. All right, actually, they didn't like the previous short one very much, did they? They wanted it a bit longer. Let's see how they feel about this. An epic, multi-character driven and dark historical fantasy. Set in an Elizabethan world where the powers of light combined to battle the rise of witchcraft and an all-encompassing evil. Right, okay. What does that tell you about the story? I'm not sure, but I'll tell you a bit about our author. I.D. Roberts was born in Australia in 1970 and raised in various parts of England. Following art college, he attended the University of Westminster to study film. Going on to write and direct a couple of short movies. He then fell into journalism, where he eventually became a film writer for the TV Times. Kind of appropriate, isn't it? He returned to education in 2010, taking an MA in creative writing at Bath Spa University. I was just in Bath Spa yesterday, and has it happened? <laughs> Since then, he has had three books published. Fantastic. I'm sure that's a great achievement. An even greater achievement, though, is going to be this reading from Mel. Shadows and Seers, written by I.D. Roberts, read by Mel. Prologue, Doll. Another world, a different time. The old woman's breathing rattled in her chest like shingle being pushed up shore by the tide. She was not awake, nor asleep, but rather in that half-twilight state where dreams seem at their most lucid. Her nostrils twitched with the tang of metal, so cold was the air misting around her, enveloping her like a shroud. Her eyes flickered under their thin, veined lids, closed to the here, 
but wide open to the beyond. The images she saw there were troubling. One moment she was watching herself, not old, withered and frail as now, but younger by some twenty years. Her back was straighter, and her hair was steely grey, not white. Then she was within her own body again. She regarded her hands, skeletal within a thin membrane, liver-spotted, skin like old parchment. Looking up again, she realized she was no longer lying in her cot, but was walking barefoot, as she so often did, the soles of her feet like leather moccasins. The landscape around her appeared crisp and monochrome, a grey-green in the watery light. There were no distinguishable details, just the hazy quality of a charcoal drawing. Now she was standing on the shore of an ice lake, black pebbles beneath her toes, smooth and hard and cold. The only sound was the crack and creak of the ice as it moved, and a scent, not of cold, but of heat, an unpleasant odour that caught the back of her throat. The darkness began to creep towards her, turning first the distant mountains and then the sky above, black and ominous. An overwhelming sense of dread made the old woman press her hand to her chest. Her breathing quickened. There was a cry above, and she looked up to see a murder of crows, circling, turning as if watching. Then one by one, they swooped and flapped, blackly down towards the shore. A little way along the beach, a naked woman with the head of a unicorn was squatting, watching. Beyond her, a man, naked and hairless, his head that of a goat, stood tall, staring back at her. He opened his mouth and screamed. But no sound came forth, only a miasma of flies. They streamed out of his throat to halo above him. The old woman turned away and stumbled, then fell face down into a rutted, muddy roadway. She slowly raised her eyes, peering through her matted hair. Running the length of the road lining either side, stretching to the horizon, were parallel lines of poles spaced about ten paces apart. Each pole was topped with a cartwheel, and bound to each cartwheel was a body, some naked, some dressed in rags, all dead, all rotting away. Many were being feasted upon by carrion. Pulling herself upright, the old woman glanced up over her shoulder. The darkness crept towards her still. The crack of a twig made her turn sharply. She could see the edge of an orchard laden with rotten fruit. She stumbled towards the trees, forcing her way deeper into their enclosing branches, ignoring the scratches to her hands and face. She emerged out into a clearing overlooking a valley shrouded in mist. Only it was no mist. The smell of burning ash and applewood was strong in the air, and there was something else, something sweeter. Then she saw the bodies the piles of tiny forms, little hands and legs, heads and torsos, all piled on top of one another. They stretched off as far as the eye could see, funeral pyres of smoldering children. An icy wind rose from nowhere. The old woman's long hair flew up around her head, like a silver halo whipping at her face. She turned her head away and faced the orchard once more. Despite the weak winter sun overhead, the darkness was moving steadily closer, turning the trees to shadow, and within that darkness something approached, and it was laughing, softly, mockingly. The darkness was now at her feet. She stepped back, keeping to the light. The darkness crept on, turning the grass where she had just been standing grey. It frosted and crisped.
Thank you, Mel. I always love listening to your orations. I'm going to be calling in the future Mellifluous Mel. I think that, that rolls off the tongue rather well. Let's see what the genii is saying. Um, some, oh, some excellent humour in the, in the genius room. Oh, where do I begin? Where do I begin? Resuscitated, new strain of spuds. Um, and now onto the blurb. This is not a blurb, says L.A. L.A. Thomas. Martin says, like the title. And Annie thinks also, titles onto something can be a tiny bit better. Yeah. Uh, Vagabond says, this blurb feels lazy. Uh, like they can't be bothered to tell me what's in it, but expect me to buy it anyway. More negative comments about the blurb. And I think Matt nails it saying the blurb tells me the author wants to protect all the secrets within the work. I think that's right. Spill a few, he says. Uh, Glenn says, love the title, blurb, okay, not all witchcraft is evil. Uh, cut the first line, doesn't add anything, says Annie. We're on to the, uh, the prose now. Uh, like the writing, says Hannah, and she knows what she's talking about. Atmospheric, says Annie, detailed, love it. Oh dear, sentences inside out um, are, says Pamela. I'm not sure which one she's referring to, but you will know, IG, you will know. Um, might be a tad overwritten, says Annie. These gems will stand out if you space them out. It slows the writing down. Good advice. Yeah. After that blurb, says uh, Vagabond, I want the story to tell me something. I'm not getting story yet. And James says, no emotion. Sounds like I wake up every day. <laughs> and uh, this also feels like a dream, says Hannah. A cliche opening. But I, I love the writing, so I would read on. Um, and Vagabond says, Vagabond says, Jude, you can certainly write. Now... Tell me a story. Superb world building. And I agree with that, says Martin. Um, and the Unifilm project about the goat and unicorn head naked scenes. Yes. It's quite visual, that, though, isn't it, actually? Confident writing, says Barbara. And Lex says, good detail. Needs more story. Oh, we found out what the par is. Oh, my God. And Johnny says, yeah, lovely reading. Uh, Annie uh, finishes off by saying, I have a feeling this could have won the show if it had started with chapter one and with a real blurb. What did you think, Ali? I totally agree. I think the blurb was actually really quite generic and, and really told us very little. Um, and at the beginning, I very I loved the images. I think, you know, the business about the shingle being pushed up by the sea and, and her eyes being closed to the here but open to the beyond. I mean, there were some beautiful images and I thought it was beautifully written. And even though it wasn't going anywhere, I was quite happy to be just sort of bundled along yeah. by it, you know. And, yeah. uh, so, but after a while, I began to just feel that we really do need a bit of story here. We need to actually, you know, for something to be happening. And at the end of it, it really was, I mean, it, it was presumably giving perspective for something about to happen. It was foreshadowing. Um, but, it, you know, my feeling was just, but why? You know, and we just do need to get on with it. Um, some of the things, like the, the pyre of, uh, of children, um, it's a bit less visceral because it was actually in theory in a dreamlike state, but it's still quite sort of gut-wrenching. It was, uh, you know, presumably there to be shocking. So effectively, I mean, I thought the craft was great, but yes, I entirely agree. It's, it's completely started in the wrong place or, right. you know, just give a tiny bit of this and, and move yeah. on with what's actually happening. Well, so often we do we do see writers writing themselves into their own worlds and they need to do it, but we don't necessarily need to read it. What did you think, Ernie? Yeah, um, I thought that the blurb was a more a genre statement and not a story hook to yeah. do anything for me at all yeah um uh, rise of witchcraft and evil a power of lightning yeah okay um mm. but there's the chapter has a lot of really lovely description i absolutely echo mm. what ali said about that. and the shingle breathing uh, from that i thought oh 
going to sit back and let the story take me now. Um, but recognizing that this was a positioning chapter. And actually, yes. the issue that we've got is we can only judge what is in front of us and what can be managed on the show. Mm. Um, she's a tourist in this strange land. She spends a lot of time walking around just seeing what there is there. Um, and if the blurb had given me the story hook or the story, mm. Mm. then actually I'd have gone, oh, I know why my feet are here. Yes. rather than uh, the write, writing postcards, yes. written postcards. Postcards of words, I don't know how to think about it. Yeah, um, no, yeah, I, yeah, that's pretty much what I wrote down. I wrote God and Snare Me, which is just what you've summed up in one word, the hook. We need that hook, okay. Um, right, so let's look at the numbers. The numbers are a 66 for you, ID, and uh, just analyze a little bit more. Uh, Andrew and Ali gave the blurb reasonable numbers as the dive of the genius room as always tell the truth even if it's not palatable they've still got to tell the truth because that's what they do um, so you're 66 let's see how that rates compared to the other submissions because we just have one more so it's mm. it's a tie how interesting i was looking i was looking for one overall winner there's not which means then the final submission could be the most important and this is it it's from andrea it's called the granite kingdom historical novel of sword and sorcery oh i like a bit of sword and sorcery and sandals sometimes and this is andrea's blurb Excuse my pronunciation. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. All right. So I'm I'm going to hazard a guess at the first word. I'm going to say Bronwyn. I might be completely wrong, and this is why I do ask you, please, when you send in anything that sort of deviates from my own extremely limited experience, then just give me a pronunciation guide, please, because it does help me. But anyway, Bronwyn, crucify me if I'm wrong, is bound by the curse of the mother who hated her and tried to destroy her. Bronwyn is sent from Ireland to Cornwall to protect her cousin Isolt, whose arranged marriage to King Mark is intended to heal the enmity between Ireland and Cornwall. Bronwyn vows to destroy King Mark, but is horrified to find herself falling in love with him. When the order comes from Ireland to kill him, she must risk her life to free herself from the curse that threatens to destroy her and those she loves. Andrea is I'm correct. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> Thank you, our expert. Uh, a retired therapist and academic is uh, Andrea. I'm a graduate of the Goldsmiths MA in Creative Writing with Merit. Congratulations with the Merit. You go on to list other courses and stuff you've done, which is not really necessary, actually. I think, you know, one or two like that is great. Um, but if you just go on and on, then I don't know what it's saying, really. One, one is, is enough. One says, I'm really serious and committed, and that's what we want to know. If you keep on listing them, then it's kind of, one starts to get the impression that, uh, you know, you're putting them down there because it's kind of, this is good writing. And I think my reaction, I, mean, I, think, I think one or two other publishers and agents would sort of say, well, you know, I'll, I'll take my own opinion on that. Um, I've written four novels, historical novels, and I'm working on a fifth. And while you're working on it, Perhaps we can entertain you with this rather splendid reading from Hannah.
The Granite Kingdom by Andrea Read by Hannah Sawan 576 AD Chapter 1 Bronwyn starts awake as she hears the harrowing shriek. She freezes, taut as a bowstring, on the edge of the pallet. Her three younger sisters lie beside her in the roof chamber of her father's ring fort. Seeking reassurance, she breathes in their familiar smells, earthy and smoky from the fire. It is not yet light. A second screech. Her whole body stiffens, for the banshee foretells a death in the clan. High on the winds, the keening comes, a heartbreaking cry torn from the other world. Bronwyn shivers as the eerie wails swoop and surge, landing right outside her chamber window. Two towering earth-built walls could not shut out this anguished soul. It must be her mother's vengeful spirit, screaming murder. Bronwyn refuses to give in to her sense of rising panic. She wraps the soft wool of her blanket about her mouth and ears and shifts her aching limbs. Today is meant to be a joyful day. Her father promised to be back by Samhain, swore that this time he would lay down his sword for good. She feels sure he will come home today. One last uncanny scream rakes the air. Then all is still. Bronwyn leaps up to open the window hatch, leans out, every fibre of her body on edge. Icy air stings her nostrils with its smell of the sea. The timbers of the big roundhouse creak and strain around her like a ship at sail, and the rain begins to patter on the thatch, its soft music turning suddenly to a pelting spate. Southwest wind plunges across the loch, raging beneath night clouds. It sounds a baneful note as it storms the deep-set piles of the Cranogues on the great marsh of Cork and batters the walls of Carrick Tuho. Has her mother come back from the other world to fulfil her curse? Has she flown from the island of the dead to sacrifice Bronwyn in the bog at last? Bronwyn has lived most of her life under the shadow of this curse. It's not the fear of death that irks her most. She's not afraid to die. No, it's the thwarting of her secret desire to be a warrior. Her father encouraged her, taught her all he knew, gifted her her beloved sword. She knew, as she took it from his hand, that this was her destiny. But her mother took away her sword and forced her to become a healer, forced her to live out her mother's dream. She prays to all the gods that her mother, who once took a knife to her, has not come to see her die. Bronwyn closes the window hatch, turns back to the sister nearest, longing for comfort. But she won't wake her. Her sisters didn't stand by her when she needed them. They didn't believe her when she told them what had happened. Softness can get you killed. Loneliness keeps you sharp. The resentment still burns hot, even after so long. She stayed away from the wrath all yesterday. 
cutting the sodden peach from the earth with the old men in soft drizzle, stacking it on the cart and leading the ox back to the fort along the trackways in hard rain, her hands stinking of the damp turf while her sisters sewed round the hearth fire or brewed possets in the warm, still room. Still, better that way. For many years, Bronwyn hasn't considered this her home. Loyalty to her father makes her work to keep the place thriving. When he comes back for good, she will end the curse at last. Only her father understands, her defender, and in recent years, her only friend. Without him, she would have given up the fight. He believed her when no one else would. It was him who always told her she must fight the curse. Her mother will never forgive her, but there might be another way. Her father has heard of a holy spring in Britain, sacred to the god our soul, where curses may be washed away in her cleansing waters. But who knows where it is? Bronwyn sighs. Thank you very much, Hannah. Great. Great, great, great reading, and let's see what Hannah also uh, thought of the the uh, submission itself. Because we, you know, if you've actually narrated something, you kind of see it from a slightly different a different uh, position. You get inside it. Hannah says, "I like the writing. There's a lot of promise here, but it felt as if the author was trying to cram in as much info as possible into this opening as possible as possible as possible." And Annie says, "Like the writing, but you're saying you're." Um, yeah, your main character's name too many times. Very descriptive, says Glenn. I like this. Liking the voice, says Pamela Jo. Interesting beginning. The weather certainly fits Ireland tonight. And Lex says, I can't pronounce what Lex is saying, but I'm sure it's incredibly intelligent. James uh, says, lots of atmosphere. Yeah, there is, isn't there? Yeah. Getting the story quicker. I think we need a different scene to start, says Annie. This feels like an info dump. Exactly what Hannah says. Does anyone ever speak? Says Matt, bit of dialogue would help. And uh, that line about her mother who took a knife to her, says Annie. Yeah, might be a good place to start. Um, I feel close to, to Bronwyn, says Martin, even though a bit telly. Doesn't mean television means telling, telling, telling. And this reminds me of uni, says Matt, and the Mabinogi a thousand years ago. That was a good thing. Uh, I'm getting the sense that each paragraph says uh, Vagabond is the writer going off at a tangent for more backstory. So there's a general theme coming through here. And uh, Lex is giving me pronunciations, guys, but I'm still not, to go, not going down that particular uh, rabbit hole. Uh, what did you think, Ali? Um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it in some ways. Um, I quite liked the, this sort of blunt business, putting a date and a time at the beginning. I mean, it is a bit of a blunt instrument, but it does at least, you know, let you know where you are, what you're yeah. setting yourself into. And then, then bits can sort of build on to that, you know, the, the building they're in, etc. Um, my feeling was it'd be better written in the first person. I think that mm. would actually draw you in an awful lot more, you know, and mm. actually make you feel her terror a bit better and, and what she's feeling. So I think it might be, it, well, I think it would be worth a revisit from that. And um, there were lots of bits that I, I liked, you know, this business about the timbers creaking like a ship at sea. And, um, you know, there were some nice phrases in there. Uh, I also like the fact that we knew very early on what the problem was. Her mother had landed her with a curse. curse. Her mother wanted her to die, even though she there was you dead. Go. Yeah. And also we knew what she wanted. You know, she wishes to be a warrior and she's trapped in this, you know, other world that she cannot fulfill what she believes to be her destiny. So I like the fact that we knew, 
you know, the problem and, and what she wanted so very early yeah. on. Um, but there was just this pile of backstory. And again, you know, all of this should have been fed in. Some of it was fed in several times. Drip feed it. Um, oh, not everyone does that. <laughs> I mean, not everyone yeah. does that. I mean, if, if you've got a load of, of backstory and is interesting, I, I guess that's all right. Did you find it interesting? I just found it too much and it just seemed to need a, a great deal of pruning and an awful lot of it just felt we didn't need to know at this point. We mm. already knew the problem, perhaps a bit more about why the mother felt so vicious, maybe. Um, yes. But I think an awful lot of that should have been pruned. And I agree about the dialogue, you know, if she'd actually spoken to one of her, you know, my God, I think that could be mother whoa you know she's still you know whatever it, yeah. it just does break it up a bit better um, yeah. like the banshee screaming at the beginning though i thought that was a, a good place to start i mean the screaming oh, yes. of banshees <laughs> <laughs> good piece of action but really nothing else happened after that so. yeah all right fair enough thank you very much and andrew uh so uh too much info i found it very difficult to get through um the uh blurb was too complicated it's already been mentioned yeah. three sentences start with the uh, name of the character uh with the lead character's name um she was horrified to find herself falling in love with him i couldn't really square that because usually mm. people are quite happy to fall in love i know there's a dilemma there yes but, but actually that was that you know, didn't didn't really work, earn its place uh or you know or lift or elevate uh yeah that, that plot point yeah um a lot of description of things that weren't interesting uh, in the chapter. Um, what what description is important for me to understand the world and what I need to know to go through this world? That's what I'd be looking for. There are too many things. However, exactly like Andy, I absolutely loved the Timbers of the Roundhouse. Uh, mm. And I thought, as, as uh, flashes of that was just delightful because that placed me there. I mm. could hear it, I could smell it. Mm, so that's, that's very helped. good. Um, uh, you know, a ship at sea, you know, the timber, you, mm. you know what that's like, you can feel the ozone. Yeah. Um, I felt very distanced from the experience because of all the uh, uh, description mm. and the intercutting between had and the now. Mm. Um, even within the same paragraph, I found distracting and disconcerting, and it threw me off. I couldn't settle into the story. Yeah, fair enough. Good. All right. A, a terrific range. The dilemma of the story is fascinating. Yes, it is, isn't it? It is, absolutely. What about, let me just ask both of you very quickly about uh, words that are not that easy to say. I got Bronwyn right, and there was Sow on there, which I challenge anyone to, to get right. Uh, it'd take a year or two to, to learn how to say that. Is that what impact does that have on the ordinary reader does it make you go oh i don't know about that i don't think i'll read that anymore or does it intrigue you i've gabbled too much ali it's your turn um i i've i don't like them because i think i mean something like bronwyn there are several ways of spelling bronwyn and it would have been an mm. awful lot easier to stick to one of the the obvious ones and i think the problem is if it's complex enough you mentally almost sub it you know you kind of go yes um and and i think it's probably better to to stick to something that is relatively easily pronounceable even if you yeah, get it wrong yeah, you know yeah. but it, it looks like you think you can probably have a reasonable crack at it yeah so i think i would be reluctant yeah, I think I agree with you too. Let's look at the numbers for you, Andrea. You got a 62, you got a 60 as well. And I have to say, I think everyone likes the title. Good marks on the title. Um, Andrew really doesn't like the blurb. Ali really does like the blurb. 
I, I love it when you go divergence of opinion, but uh, <laughs> that's about it. And you've got an overall 60, and I think, well, how do I summarise? I think uh, everyone is sort of saying info dumping, we don't, that, that's sort of getting in the way. There's just simply too much of that. But I think there's also the suspicion, the feeling there's something really good here too. So hopefully you're pleased with that. Now then, this is going to be very difficult for me. Let's look at the final score. Oh, look! It's, oh my goodness, it's changed. And, th and he can do this. He does change sometimes. Now, you may ask, why has um, ID Roberts' score gone from 66 to 67? And I'll tell you why. It's because one or two more genii decided to vote. And they can only vote once. So there's nothing funny going on. But it's just slightly late voting has just slightly tipped ID Roberts into the lead. <laughs> Congratulations, ID. You are a show winner. You're the winner of the show. Someone's just... <laughs> Hopefully that's not all our other people screwing up there. There's the submissions. I don't know what that noise is. Uh, I'm going to say thank you very much. Oh, it's Andrew. What, what were you doing, Andrew? You're making horrible noises. I'm moving my chair. That's all it is. Look, I'm moving my chair. Okay, I don't totally believe that, but uh, we, we won't dwell on that. Um, I just want to say thank you very much. Are you uh, people are even now in the genius room saying, you know, what great input from Andrew. So kind of you you're a hit. Thank you so much, Ali. Always wonderful having you. <laughs> no oh, always spot on. And I noticed actually that you managed not just to be a great panelist today. You also happen to be a great member of the genius room, and it takes some cojones to be able to do that. But there you go. There you go. That's that's Ali through and through. Uh, great, great show tonight. Really enjoyed it. A little bit long, guys. A little bit long. Um, but that's because we don't have one next week. 23rd, no show. So don't turn up expecting one because you're going to be disappointed. Um, with a bit of luck, with the technological, technological gods and gremlins behind us, we will get fully connected up in uh, Warhamster. And we will be with you in two weeks' time. All right, so put out those good vibes. Fingers crossed. See you in a couple of weeks. Hit it!